thank you so much for your faithfulness to the house of God. Amen. I know that there's just a few of us. As a matter of fact, after I got all the reports of who wasn't going to be here, there's a little more here than I thought there might be. I was a little worried for a few minutes. Amen. I'll do my best not to keep you all night long. I'm just going to try to go about six or seven hours, and then we'll, we'll call it a good night. Amen. But if you have your Bible, want to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read one verse, Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. Brother Dennis, if you have it, would you say amen? When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Thy sins be forgiven thee. I want to preach for a few minutes from this subject, the miracle beneath the roof. The miracle beneath the roof. Our series on miracles will continue tonight, and we're going to talk about this paralytic man, this palsied man who was lowered into the presence of God and walked away carrying his bed. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? I love you. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I thank you for the great grace of God. I'm asking, Lord, you'd open up the word of God and let it speak into our hearts and our lives. Let it touch us. Let it challenge us and let it change us. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? In contrast to last week's lesson where the Samaritan woman unexpectedly met Jesus at the well, this week we have four men who carried the paralytic to Jesus fully expecting a miracle. Yet like the Samaritan woman who upon encountering Jesus received more than just the drinking water that she sought, the man suffering from paralysis received more than just the miracle of his healing. Amen? Thy sins be forgiven thee, Jesus said. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Jesus Christ uh, is able to do more than you think he can do. Amen. Aren't you so glad that sometimes you come to him with a need and all you want is for that need to be met, but when he gets done, he's done more than meet the need. Amen. He's done more than you expected him to do. He's done more than you asked him to do amen he's done more you couldn't even thought of it that's what the scripture said you couldn't have even imagined it and my imagination is pretty good amen but he's able to do more than i can think of amen that's why an encounter with jesus often goes beyond our expectations he goes past what we think we want to give us what we really need and we don't even understand it sometimes sometimes we're praying for lord to bless us on our job we need a pay raise and instead we lose our job amen you've been there but you come along a few weeks later and you've got a job that's better than the one you had before and the pay is better. Amen. I, we didn't know that wasn't we didn't even know to pray for that. Amen. We were just asking God, we need a blessing. We need a breakthrough. And he even in a way that we didn't understand at first, he made a way where there seemed to be no way. Amen. Jesus's ability to go above and beyond what we would ask or think flows from the fact that he is God manifest in the flesh. Amen. He possesses all the attributes of deity, including all 
power, amen, it all belongs to Jesus. As expressed in John's revelation, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, Jesus is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, amen, that's who Jesus is. The fact that, that he is God manifest in the flesh is why he can give the Samaritan woman living water instead of just water from the well. And the fact that he is God manifest in the flesh uh, is the reason why he can say to the paralytic man, not just thy body be made whole, but thy sins be forgiven. Acknowledging the deity of Jesus is foundational to Christianity. Unfortunately, some still consider the knowledge of who Jesus is to be a mystery beyond understanding. And they confuse the meaning of the word mystery in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. That scripture says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Paul used the Greek word mysterion, mystery. And it's translated as mystery, but it means something sacred or something hidden in secret, which is, an un, which is naturally unknown to human reason that can only be made known by a revelation of God. So what Paul said when he said great is the mystery of Godliness, he wasn't saying it can't be known. Uh, he was saying it can only be known by revelation. Amen? And then he shares the revelation. God was manifest in the flesh. Uh, God was justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in this world, and received up into glory. Amen? The Bible reveals Jesus to us as God manifest in the flesh. Isaiah prophesied concerning God coming as a man. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and most of you can probably quote it. It says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, uh, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And he revealed himself as the Mighty God to his disciples through his divine acts, the miracles that he performed, and, and things like forgiving sins. Amen. He also revealed himself by his statements claiming deity. He said, I and my Father are one. Amen. Not, not me that doeth the works, but he that worketh through me. He further expressed to them that failing to honor him was to fail to honor God. He told them that to see him was to see God. To know him was to know God. To believe in him was to believe in God. To receive him was to receive God. And to hate him was to hate God. When Thomas saw Jesus after his resurrection, he became a believer in the fullness of the deity of Jesus Christ. 
It may be up to that point Thomas doesn't recognize and realize exactly who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, the entire book of John builds. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, that mystery that Paul talked about being revealed. And all the way through the book of John, John is drawing a portrait of Jesus Christ as God manifests in flesh. It begins within the beginning was a word. The word was with God, and the word was God. If you got any question about it, he sets the basis right off. And then he says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then he, every miracle, every sign, every wonder, every chapter of the the book of John is it is a progressive revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ and it all culminates after his death burial and resurrection when Thomas looks at him in that room uh, amen and Thomas the doubter uh, and the one that had said I won't believe that he's risen uh, until I can stick my hand uh, in his riven side uh, and he said to Thomas uh, in John chapter 20 and verse 27 uh, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands uh, and reach hither thy hand uh, and thrust it into my side uh, and be not faithless but believing he said you said you want to see the nail scars Thomas here they are you want to see my ribbon side here it is reach out and touch it make sure you satisfy your desire to know me for who I really am uh, and Thomas responded that devout Jew that that monotheist, he who believed that hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one. There's no other God beside him, no other God before him, no other God that can claim his title. He is God alone. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. You've got to understand how significant that is for Thomas. He's a devout Jew. He won't plead, pledge allegiance to any other. He won't even call a man Lord, much less God. But he says of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. Saul was a persecutor, and he became convinced of Jesus' deity before committing to becoming the, the apostle Paul. It was while he was on his way to Damascus to locate and arrest Christians. He was breathing curses. He had letters in his hands and he had authority and he had the right to persecute them. And as he went in his own self-righteousness, uh, fulfilling what he believed was the law of God, uh, he encountered a blinding light uh, from heaven in the road to Damascus. Uh, and Acts chapter 9 and verse 4 says, and he fell to the earth uh, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 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 why persecutest thou me? And Saul answered and said, Who art thou, Lord? Now you got to understand if you're Saul and you're hearing a voice out of heaven, he's a devout believer in God. He knows whose voice that is. Amen. He knows who's calling. Now he just doesn't understand why he's been hit this way, why God has stepped into his life this way. But there's nothing else to say. He says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou 
persecutest. I am Jesus. Whenever Saul heard the words, I am, he recognized I'm talking about the deity of an almighty God has stepped into my life, but he never expected the next word. I am Jesus. The significance of that declaration resounded deep within Saul. As a devout Jew, he grew up just like Thomas, hearing daily that prayer from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They prayed it every day. They read it every day. It was the scripture that was written on the doorpost that was attached to their clothing that everywhere they went, they were reminded, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And the realization that Jesus was that one true God, that one who was Lord God Almighty. Uh, that realization is what led Saul to his repentance. Uh, it's what led him to baptism in the name of Jesus Christ uh, for the remission of his sins. Uh, it's what led him uh, to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, uh, to be filled with the power and the presence of God. And he was converted uh, from a zealous persecutor of the church uh, to a zealous preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, all because of a revelation of who Jesus is. Later, he was known as Paul, and you know that he penned much of the New Testament. And as he did, he tried to tell everyone who would listen who Jesus was. He reminded the Corinthians that God was in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 19 says to it that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ. He then admonished the Colossians concerning the full deity of Jesus in the sound of a warning. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Beware. Be careful. Don't let anybody twist you. Don't let anybody get you distracted. Don't let them spoil you through philosophy and seat. Uh, you better know who Jesus is. Uh, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Where'd he get that? He got that on a road to Damascus. He got that from a voice that spoke from heaven. Uh, he had a revelation of the identity of Jesus. It could only come from God, but all of a sudden he understood who Jesus was, and it became his passion to share that understanding with everyone who would listen. Uh, I want to join with the Apostle Paul this evening and tell you who Jesus is. Uh, he is God manifest in the flesh. Uh, the question of the Godhead is not an unresolved mystery. Uh, 
It is a revelation, amen, of who Jesus is. Uh, there's only one God, amen. Before him, there was no God. After him, there'll be no God. There is no God beside him. Uh, there's only one God, uh, amen, and there's no distinction uh, of persons in God. Uh, Jesus Christ is all the fullness of the Godhead incarnate. And it's important that you know who Jesus is. Amen? That's my candy stick. I could stay there for the rest of the night, but somehow i got to find my way back to the text. Mark chapter 2 introduces the subject of how Jesus' ministry brought conflict between him and Jewish religious leaders. Their inability to accept Jesus as God manifest in the flesh, ultimately would lead them to crucify him. But this story picks up in that pitiful, pivotal moment when the scribes were beginning to become concerned about Jesus. And into that atmosphere, those four men lowered that paralyzed man through the roof uh, to where Jesus was. And Mark chapter 2 and verse 5 says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. That caused quite an uproar. Amen. No one saw that coming. It exceeded everyone's expectation. You see, they expected Jesus to work a miracle. They expected Jesus to heal the paralyzed man. But forgiving sin, that was going a step too far. In Judaism, for a man to claim to be able to forgive sins was blasphemy. Claiming to be able to perform activities that uniquely belong to God would indicate either that one was claiming to be God, you don't say, or that one had, was arrogant and had a complete disrespect for God. In the eyes of the Jewish scribes, either one of those qualified a man for blasphemy, and the, and the penalty for blasphemy was death. That's why they'll hang him on the cross. It's not because he was a teacher and a preacher and a miracle worker. It's because he said he was God. Amen. Make no mistake about it. They crucified him because they saw his claim to be God as blasphemy. You see, forgiving sins is one of several divine attributes and activities that belongs uniquely to God. Ultimately, all sin is against God. And only God can forgive sin. Daniel chapter 9 verse 9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness. Forgiveness belongs to God. It is uniquely His prerogative. He's the only one that has the ability to forgive sins. When Jesus said to that paralytic man, thy sins be forgiven thee, the scribes immediately rose up uh, because they didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Uh, they believed that he was committing blasphemy. Uh, they saw the words of Jesus uh, as an affront to the majesty and authority of God. 
The problem is that even though the scribes correctly understood the words that Jesus spoke, they didn't fully grasp the one that was speaking the word. They didn't know who Jesus was. Amen. Jesus was not blaspheming God. Indeed, he was uh, the almighty God, uh, the ancient of days, uh, the one who was and is uh, and forever will be manifest in flesh. Uh, Jesus had the authority to forgive sins because he was God. He wasn't a madman who had visions of grandeur who thought he was God when he was not. Uh, he is not a bad man lying and giving false hope uh, and claiming to be able to do something uh, that he knew he could not do. No, Jesus operated with divine authority because he possessed that authority by being God. Amen. While he had not yet gone to the cross, while he had not yet given himself as a ransom for the sins of others, he was, as the scripture proclaimed, the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. And later, at the cross of Calvary, Jesus would carry our sins. He would carry them as an old rugged cross. And his blood would wash away the stain of sin. His blood the authority to forgive sins. Uh, amen. Knowing what the scribes were thinking then, understanding that they're rising up against this idea that Jesus could forgive sins, uh, and knowing that anybody could say that they forgave sins because there's really no way to see the evidence of that that has taken place. Uh, Jesus turned to the scribes and he asked them in Mark chapter 2 and verse 9, whether is it easier to say to the sick of palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise, take up thy bed, and walk? The answer was obvious. There's no immediate sign that the sins of the paralytic were forgiven. And when Jesus said, thy sins be forgiven thee, a lifetime of sin uh, was covered. Uh, amen. But there was no evidence uh, on the outside. But when he said to the man, arise uh, and take up thy bed uh, and walk. Uh, amen. The healing power of God touched him. Uh, and he stood to his feet uh, and demonstrated the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. When he took up his bed and headed home, the scribes were faced with a dilemma of either accepting Jesus as the Almighty God who can forgive sins. If he can, he can, he can say, I forgave sins, but he, when he said the man was going to rise and walk, he got up out of the bed and walked. Amen. Either they've got to come to terms with that or they've got to reject him as a blasphemer regardless of the evidence of his authority. You and I know they chose the latter, but they weren't the only ones there that day. Mark chapter 12, 2 and verse 12 says, And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified 
God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Uh, so as the crowd watched, uh, as Jesus confronted the scribes, uh, and when he said to the man, arise, uh, take up thy bed and walk, uh, immediately the man got up uh, and he took up his bed uh, and he began to leave the building. Uh, amen. And the Bible said they were amazed uh, and they glorified God. God. Uh, amen. They came expecting to see a miracle, but they got more than a miracle. Amen. They got uh, the evidence uh, that Jesus was God. They got the evidence, not just that he could work miracles, uh, but that he could forgive sins. They said, we never saw it on this fashion. We never saw it like this. We didn't imagine it like this. This wasn't what we expected. Yeah, we thought he might open blinded eyes. We thought he might heal a lame man. We thought the paralytic might walk again. Uh, but we never imagined uh, that he could forgive sin. We should never cease to be amazed and glorify Jesus for what he does. Both the visible miracles that we can see and celebrate and the invisible miracles that are no less important, miracles that we cannot see, like forgiveness of sins. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, uh, they shall be as wool. Uh, no man can see it, uh, but when Jesus touches a life, uh, amen, the blood of Jesus Christ uh, takes a sin-stained heart uh, and washes it white as snow. Uh, amen. You can't see See it on the outside. Uh, there's no evidence immediately. Uh, you, there's no way to tell that that has happened. Uh, amen. But we need to remember uh, it's a tremendous miracle. Uh, even if it can't be seen with the eyes. Uh, Jesus Christ forgives sin. That's good news because every one of us was born a sinner. Every one of us needs his mercy. Amen. The scripture doesn't really tell us how the man became paralyzed. We don't know if he was born that way or if there was an injury or a sickness somewhere along the way that left him debilitated. All we really know about that man is that he had four friends who believed that Jesus could heal him. So they made plans to carry him to where Jesus was. And it was noised abroad that Jesus was in a particular place. And so they grabbed up that bed and they made the journey to where Jesus was. But by the time they arrived, a large crowd had gathered and it was impossible to get to where Jesus was. Here's the thing. These guys believed that Jesus could heal if only they could get him to him. They could get the paralytic man to Jesus. People of faith are persistent. Faith doesn't give up. Faith won't be denied. It won't be turned away. When a door closes, faith goes to looking for a window, or in this case, a roof. First century Palestinian homes had flat roofs with stairs that led up to the roof. The roof was made of trusses of wood 
covered by layers of mat and straw or other material that was covered by smooth, hardened clay. Each year before the rainy season, they had to go up and patch and reseal the roof with fresh clay. It's very likely these four friends had probably been involved in either building or patching their own roof, and they knew, Brother Donnie, if we can get up there, it's not that hard to make a hole in the roof. Uh, and so they carried the man up the stairs, and they proceeded to locate the section of the building where Jesus was, and they began to tear a hole in the roof right above where Jesus was. Then they lowered the paralytic man down uh, into the presence of Jesus uh, and immediately got his attention. You know why? Because Jesus always notices faith. And faith always gets a response from Jesus. And Jesus responded by going above and beyond what their faith expected. The palsied man not only received the desired healing of his body, but he also walked away with his sins forgiven. Jesus removed the sickness that kept his limbs from working. He took away the thing that had held him captive for so long and gave them the strength to work immediately. He, there was no rehabilitation. Amen. When, when you go into the hospital and you're sick and you're bedridden for weeks and months at a time, you've got to go to the health south or somewhere like that and get rehabilitated because your body doesn't know how to walk anymore. Amen. Your muscles are weak, and, and there's no structure there. Amen. This man's been laid up with, with uh, some type of paralytic condition for Lord only knows how long. But when Jesus touched him, he didn't just heal him. He made him whole. He gets up, takes up his bed, and walks. Jesus can do anything if you put your faith in him. Amen. I want to close by revisiting a passage of Scripture from Sunday evening's sermon. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself the four men who cared enough to carry their friend to jesus are not named in the bible they will remain forever anonymous with this one exception the one thing we know about them is that they were good neighbors they loved their neighbor as themselves they looked at their neighbor and his stricken condition and said, you know what? If that was me, I'd want somebody to do something for me. If that was me, I'd want somebody to carry me to the presence of the healer. If that was me, I'd want somebody to intervene on my behalf. And when they could have turned away, amen, when they could have said no, they said, come, let's gather together and let's take him to Jesus. And they loved their neighbor so much then when they get to the house where Jesus is uh, and it's too crowded to come in uh, and they could have turned away and they could have said, well, we tried, but it's too hard. Uh, and they could have backed up and nobody would have blamed them. But they loved their neighbors so much that they pressed on. They just kept pressing through the obstacles. 
till they finally tore a hole in the roof and put their friend in the presence of Jesus. When I talk about the kind of love that must be manifest in the church, this is the kind of love I'm talking about. It's a love for the lost. It's a love for those who don't yet know this marvelous truth, those that have not yet had the revelation of who Jesus is. And that love compels you to do whatever is necessary to get them in the presence of Jesus. It's not about religious debates. It's not about who has the most theological prowess. It's about getting folks into the presence of Jesus. Uh, there may not be that many people in the room tonight, but Jesus is here. Amen. There may not be that many people in this house on a, a Sunday. We may have 10 or 12 empty pews, uh, but there's no absence uh, of the presence of Jesus. Uh, amen. If we can just get them into his presence, uh, He'll do the rest. Amen. If we can just bring them and get them into the presence of Jesus, He'd touch their life. Amen. Would you stand with me? So I want to challenge you this evening to live out genuine, godly love. Live out the kind of love I preached about Sunday night. Reach out to your neighbor. And bring them to Jesus. That's what this is all about. When you see somebody in this world who's sick and hurting and broken, don't just turn your shoulder and walk away, but have compassion. Be filled with a love that says, let me get you to where Jesus is. I know a healer. Amen. I know a, I know a life changer. I, I know someone who can change and break the bonds of addiction. I, I know somebody who can put your marriage back together again. I know somebody who can set you free. I, I know somebody uh, who can change your direction. I, I know somebody uh, who can touch your life so that you'll never be the same. Come, why don't you let me take you to where Jesus is? The world is filled with people who are paralyzed by sin, whose only hope is Jesus. And what they desperately need are some friends who will carry them to Jesus and assist them in overcoming the obstacles that stand between them and reaching him. That's our job. That's what we're called to do. Jesus is in this house. He bids the weary and heavy laden come unto me and I'll give you rest. Our job is to put our faith into action and bring them to his presence. That's what we're called to do. Go make disciples. Love your neighbor as yourself. I so desire that this church will be characterized more than anything else by love. Because Jesus says this is how they'll know that you're my disciples. By your love one for another. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? I love you.